This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today's topic uh, surrounds one of the most significant transformations in our society over the last 200 years, uh, which is what uh, our scholars today call the creeping or perhaps uh, precipitous militarization of American democracy and American culture. Um, Founders of our society expected us to be a society with very small military presence. And we've become a society with a very large military presence. And war has become the metaphor we use for everything from conflicts overseas to uh, crises, health crises at home. Uh, our two uh, experts today are two of the leading people writing about this transformation, uh, what it means for our society today, and uh, how we need to escape Uh, the militarized thinking that seems to dominate so much of our society. We're very fortunate to have with us uh, two professors, Professor Nita Crawford, excuse me, Nita Crawford, uh, who's a professor and chair of political science at Boston University. Uh, She's the author of numerous books, uh, including Accountability for Killing, Moral Responsibility for Collateral Damage in America's Post-9-11 Wars, and Argument and Change in World Politics, which is actually a book I've assigned to students for many years. Uh, in addition, we have uh, Catherine Lutz. She's the Thomas J. Watson Family Junior Professor. She's the Thomas J. Watson Junior Family Professor of Anthropology and International Studies at the Watson Institute for International Studies at Brown University. And she's the author as well of numerous books, including War and Health, The Medical Consequences of the Wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, The Bases of Empire, and uh, or The Bases of Empire, it has a dual meaning, and Homefront, A Military City and the American 20th Century. Uh, among other things, uh, Nita and Kathy are uh, co-directors of the Costs of War Project at Brown University, which I think is one of the best projects in tracing the costs of America's recent wars. I often use that data myself in my research and teaching. And they published uh, this week a wonderful and informative piece in The Hill, called Fighting a Virus with the Wrong Tool. We've linked that piece to to this podcast. Uh, Nita and Kathy, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having us. My pleasure. So before we go to our discussion with Nita and Kathy, we, of course, have our scene-setting poem from Mr. Zachary Siri. Uh, Zachary, what's the title of your poem? Carpet Bombing Disease. Well, let's hear about Carpet Bombing Disease. Carpet Bombing Disease. Could Washington have imagined our military, our 1.3 million tank-armed nuclear arsenal force, burning down jungles, assassinating foreign leaders till we're hoarse, and parading their guns on TV advertisements that make war look like a video game? Could Ben Franklin comprehend our armies, the biggest piece of the American apple pie, with apple slices to make civilization die, and cinnamon crust to put a million six feet under? We are waiting for Armageddon with our tanks and heat-seeking missiles, hoping to prove our greatness by forcing it upon other peoples, thinking the American dream must be hidden in age-weathered hills or war-ravaged steeples, or trying to find our best lame excuses for torture. But Lincoln could have told us that safety does not come from waiting for the burglar with a gun pointed at the door, that militarism division is a smoke-snorting boar waiting in the wings of democracy. And where do we find ourselves dying but at the obvious hand of disease, 
like the biblical pestilences or bombastic plagues. Where is the threat but in our own hands, multiplying in our face like some spoof on the jets blasting over football stands? Some prank, the germs that crawled into the budget-barren outcrops of public health. How will we find ourselves after trying to carpet-bomb disease, but standing in the glorious desolation of the survivors and fleas? A few thousand chanting the words to the Pledge of Allegiance, praying war will save us from nature's grievance. That's a very powerful poem, Zachary, particularly the ending. What, what, what is your poem about? My poem is really about uh, the American obsession with our, our military and with uh, power abroad. Um, but in many ways, too, it's about how militarism has crept into every facet of our lives. And we see it uh, very strongly in this public health crisis that we're now in the middle of. Well, I think that's a, a perfect spot to turn to uh, Nita and Kathy. Uh, Nita, what do we mean when we talk about militarism? What, what does that concept mean in practice? Well, it's essentially making uh, the military seem like or be the tool you turn to first, and you believe that it's effective, efficient, that it's um, going to solve your problems over other tools. And the militarism really is the essentially the idea that the use of force is effective uh, because that's what people respond to. I see. Uh, Kathy, you're an anthropologist, among other things. How does what, what Nita explained so clearly, how, how does that uh, influence our culture as a society? Well, it's, it is uh, based in a set of beliefs. Nita's identified a couple of them. Um, the idea that force is efficient. Let's say, you know, you could maybe get something done. But if you're in a hurry, uh, better to use force because it will it will get your get your goal reach reach you your goal much more efficiently. Um, so there's a whole set of cultural beliefs that um, people sort of absorb growing up in the society um, in different ways in different you know sort of sub subcultural areas uh, of the country. But um, it's 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 a very very widespread um, assumption from the, on the left and the right uh, that that war is um, tragic, uh, but often necessary. Um, so there's, there's, there's really a very long list, a long sort of set of, um, ideas that, that help to support the institution itself. So the, the cultural supports there, we, we think of them as kind of pillars of belief that hold up the whole, uh, political economic system of, um, war spending, war preparation and war waging. Um, and, and how do we, um, how, why is uh, militarism so dangerous for a society like ours? Well, I think it has to do with the fact that when you say that uh, the use of force is going to be, in every case, legitimate or effective or efficient, what you're saying is that you've, you're, you're not going to let the force of the better argument, that is a democratic approach, guide you or that you're going to put your resources into what seem to be the most effective um, tool. Uh, so it's it both an opportunity cost for a democracy, and it's also um, uh, basically undermining the basic idea of democracy and human rights, which is that people together will decide what it is good and right to do. Um, 
Yeah, no, the cost uh, of, of having this sort of belief system is, as Nita was saying, it's, a, it's an opportunity cost for democracy, uh, the, the better argument, the, the sort of collective discussion, and, and the national security state that's developed in tandem with this is, is one that, sh- um, you know, just, just requires secrecy, requires that we not have the discussion, um, leave this to the experts and the use of force is what we're always told. Uh, even though there's nothing more important um, in terms of democratic deliberation than the decision to go to war, so it's it's um, it's quite ironic that we've gotten to that. But there's also opportunity costs that our project, the Cost of War Project, has identified. Um, some of them through the work of um, Dr. Heidi Peltier, who's talked about the way in which investing in um, military uh, equipment and, and um, the military's institution create far fewer jobs than other kinds of investments, including investments in healthcare, um, partly because uh, they are obviously um, much more labor intensive kinds of, of um, sectors, but also because right, it's, it saves lives rather than loses them to, to a society. So that's a, that's a huge opportunity cost that we've invested in, in war rather than, you know, green energy or public health. Well, Kathy, one of the things that that has struck me about the Costs of War project is that is that you and Nita and your other collaborators uh, document the costs of our wars, the actual costs, and it's it, it it's mind blowing in some ways. What do you say to those who would argue that the money we spend on the military has all kinds of positive effects through innovation, you know, developing the internet, Tang, all sorts of things of that of that kind. <laughs> Oh, oh, I love that image. Yeah, Tang, I love the think, image. Yeah. But I think, Tang, we can chalk up to the space program, but never mind. I digress. Because the image of, of drinking Tang while while surfing the web is is um, just such a, a boon to, to civilization. Um, yes. Anyway, I, I do think, um, yeah, so, some of that assumption about the, the, the efficiency is, is just wrong, just as it is on in the case of force itself, rather that whether that can create uh, a new social order in a way that uh, more fi- effectively and efficiently than something else. Uh, the same thing's true here. We have uh, a, a such sharp examples with this virus and the, the call on the military to provide things that people now are acting that like they're, we ought to be extremely grateful uh, that this ship has sailed up the Hudson to, to deliver a thousand beds to the people of New York, um, the cost of that ship, the uh, the ineffic- inefficiency and expense of delivering that uh, healthcare that way rather than having built a hospital years ago that would have served underserved neighborhoods in New York all this time uh, with a thousand beds and be available today. I mean, that's the kind of thing that... Um, you know, it's is true on on so many grounds that more direct investment straight into the civilian world of need uh, would get you much more bang for your buck. To use the the wrong metaphor again, you see, even you're even you're caught in this culture of militarism, Kat. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> Nita. Well, if you want a hospital or you want a road, better to build that thing directly than have the military give it to you as a side benefit. So all of the innovation 
that we could think of as coming from a military industrial complex could have been actually provided for much more directly, efficiently, effectively, perhaps, than through investing in um, a military industrial complex and getting those things as a side benefit or a side payment. So I completely agree with Kathy there. It's, it's not just that uh, we could get these things, uh, you know, ablative surfaces from, for warheads that are, you know, returning to earth. Okay, we could have got something that could resist heat much more effectively by not putting it on a, a nuclear warhead, but, but investing. But we've, we've distorted our, our, our economy and our belief system so much that that is sometimes the only way we can get resources directed to something. That's the, the deep, uh, to, to my mind, sort of fundamental distortion of this, um, you know, 150, 200 years of militarism that, that sometimes uh, we can only get something if it's a, a side benefit of the war system. So think about uh, investing in uh, women and children of veterans or of uh, people who've been killed in wars. That, that, ha- that kind of social welfare system has been a consequence in some cases of war, but couldn't we have done that without war? Unlikely in a society that says that, uh, you know, our, our highest, highest priority is the control of everything everywhere all the time out there and at home. But if we had a more compassionate society that had different beliefs, we might have gotten it. Right. Now, this is a great point. It, it, it invokes the work of Peter Scottsboll and others, uh, as, as well as uh, two of you. I'm, I'm curious, uh, as a historian, uh, is this something that's been baked into our system forever? Because... Uh, Many of our first social welfare programs, uh, going back to the 19th century, are themselves uh, built around the military. If one thinks about uh, Civil War pensions, which were the largest federal outlay in the second half of the 19th century. Is this something baked into our system or how has it become more of a problem? How has it become more significant over time? Well, it's it's definitely um, if you look at uh, federal spending on the military, that um, was is definitely a, a, a post-World War II phenomenon that, that we, we expect to have this sort of, um, I guess you said, you know, uh, eyes and, and hands on everything around the globe at all times. Um, before World War II, um, you know, and, and after each of the previous wars, the, the military de, uh, demobilized in a really substantial way. Um, and it's only that in the post-World War II period that we have this giant standing army. Um, so that's, that's definitely not a, a, a timeless feature of the American um, uh, government or uh, our society. Sure. And you, you referred to this earlier, Kathy, I think quite appropriately as the national security state. The, the phrase national security itself was very infrequently used, if at all, before World War II, and it seems ubiquitous now, Right. Right. And that's where, you know, I think people are starting to notice, and I think this uh, hopefully will be something that sort of cracks open the discussion a little bit, this virus, because people are asking, I don't feel very secure. Um, here's, here is, uh, you know, the richest country on earth. Uh, we, we should be able to have purchased um, a public health system that keeps us safe. Um, and, and so that, that idea that, uh, of, of going overseas and looking for 
threats uh, there is, you know, is going to have um, perhaps, uh, hopefully, less allure than, than it might have uh, absent the virus. Could I, I intervene with a couple of other thoughts, though, about this? Kathy, you and I have often talked about, you know, whether or not and how deep is American militarism. And I tend to think of it as, you know, being foundational in the sense that um, from the beginning, the United States is built on war and dispossession of land of other people. And that is from the colonial period through the Revolutionary War, War of 1812, all the Indian Wars, the U.S.-Mexico War, uh, the Civil War, where uh, Indian Wars continued throughout the continuation of the Indian Wars and then moving into the Philippines with um, the Spanish-American War, that militarism is a constant. But what you rightly identify is the way that, you know, in the past when military spending reached maybe 60% of total government expenditures, national government expenditures in, let's say, the War of 1812 or the Civil War, it went down afterwards. And we didn't have a permanent military establishment. There was a decline in the number of people uh, in the standing army. But what we see post-World War II is the continuation of that. So the only wrinkle I'm adding um, here is to say that there is part of the United States history, it's um, DNA, if you will, which is completely uh, uh, dependent upon and imbued with the sense that might makes right. We can take what we want when we want by the use of force and it works. And it's deployed uh, intermittently in the 18th and 19th century, but much more frequently in the 20th century and, and has become permanent in the 20, 20th century and, and uh, 21st century this sort of permanent mobilization. I, I think that's very well said. One of the points I often make to students is that that scale matters, right? So, so this might be something that was germinating in uh, the history of, of our society for two to 300 years in different formats, but it does seem to have multiplied in its scale, uh, particularly in the second half of the 20th century. I, I think that's what, what the two of you are saying. Why do you think that's happened? What's been the cause of this? Is this a conspiracy or, or, or what has multiplied the effects of militarism in our society for the last six, seven decades? So many things. <laughs> um, I think, you know, the, the, one of the, the largest uh, components of this is the, the, the development of these large corporations for whom uh, these government, large government contracts uh, with the Department of Defense and Department of Energy for nuclear weapons and so on are are basically their their lifeblood and um, the decline in the in the quality of our democracy as companies of that ilk and and others have increasing power over our representatives um, through the lack of campaign finance controls. Um, we have uh, again a, a incredible incentive structure for. Uh, continued massive investment in not just the the weaponry and the and the um, all of the contracts uh, more generally, but in the idea that that supports this high level of spending, which is that the world is a world of threat, that force works, and that this is this is who we are and have to be. So yours is a political economic argument in part. Yeah, and I I would only add to that. Uh, what you got to at the end there, Kathy, which is 
I think that the mobilization of fear is essential here. That not just a reaction to what is out there, but um, the idea that the world is a threatening place. The best way to respond to those threats, uh, it, according to this logic of militarism, is with force and the, the readiness to use it. But I, I also think that um, the mobilization of fear is political. So think back to the 1980s when, or the late 1970s, when the Committee on the Present Danger told us that the Soviet Union was building bigger weapons, more warheads. They were going to come across uh, East Germany into West Germany, and uh, we needed to have more military force to respond to this imminent threat. So with the end of the Cold War, that declines, but then other threats uh, had to be essentially found in the post-Cold War era. And the threat in that period became what the DOD called uncertainty. So we were prepared to respond to a world where we wouldn't know where the threats would be coming, but we had to be prepared for everything. And then in the post-9-11 world, we've got reasonable fear, but no sense of what risks we're willing to live with. Right, so the the in fact the fear becomes unreasonable, and we need to be prepared to again meet uncertainty and everything everywhere all the time. And I think that the psychological piece here is really important, and the fact that we sort of can't calm our nervous systems down enough to have a good understanding of well, what risks are we willing to live with? If we can't have one hundred percent certainty that nothing bad will have us what happen to us, what can we? endure. And then the other part of that is this, um, uh, it's not just the domestic uh, uh, military industrial complex and their influence on legislatures, which I think is, can't be um, overstated in some respects, but it's this sort of um, desire to maintain American hegemony and to not lose face and um, influence in the world. It seems to me as if, you know, an America which is in decline in part because we spend so much money on military forces and um, protecting everything everywhere all the time is anxious to hold on to that hegemony, its great power status. When, when history tells us that you can't hang on to that great power status by spending, overreaching, creating enemies, in fact, what we're doing is kind of productive to maintaining that great power status. It's this kind of American um, imaginary of the uh, great power greater than Rome, and we must maintain this position or there's something sort of wrong with us. And that is totally linked with the American standard of living and our sense of, you know, things should be cheap and easy and um, we should be able to, uh, you know, completely... Um, control and grow our economy and that uh, nothing bad should happen to us in terms of both economics and politics. We have to uh, be, um, I, I don't, I don't know. I just think, you know, uh, like a Leviathan and, and, and if, and if we can't do that, there's something wrong. So that's in part why we keep spending uh, high levels of uh, our treasury on war when in fact it's counterproductive. 
And, and, and Nita, this, this is really powerful what you said, and it connects directly into the piece that you and Kathy published this week in The Hill, which, which in, in some ways motivated this conversation, and I hope everyone will read the piece. Um, you and Kathy argue that, um, just as following the lines of what you just articulated, that our hyper-militarization has now become self-defeating, and that in this pandemic, using war as a metaphor is actually hurting us. Can, can you elaborate on that? Well, actually, I'll, I'll say something about that, but I also want to give an example of what Nita's talking sure. about that, that, um, that connects these as well. Um, the, and let, let me start with the example. Um, the, there's this um, uh, uh, aircraft carrier that um, we're carrying 5,000 sailors, uh, which everyone has heard about in the last couple of days who's been watching the news. Yes. And the... the uh, the rear admiral at the command of the ship has been relieved of his duty for having had the temerity to announce more publicly than he should have that his sailors are sick. Um, and again, this is the 11th aircraft carrier group uh, out and around uh, the planet doing the work that Nita suggests it's doing, but they're being felled by a virus just like anyone else. The, the, the idea that he was not supposed to be announcing a weakness um, in in a country that could have done without eight or nine of those aircraft carrier groups and still been the dominant sea force on the planet um, is is a sign of that sort of again irrationality the, the the idea that there's no limit to to the invulnerability and the power that the United States has to wield. In the meantime, uh, they, they're landing on the island of Guam. And putting their sailors, uh, again, with the sort of arrogance that, um, and the racialized arrogance that, that Nita's pointing to in our longer history, um, on the island in the civilian neighborhoods, uh, in a hotel where, uh, when they already have a third of the island's uh, landmass uh, under their control, where they could have put the six sailors. So um, that, this is just an example of how, when you look at the way in which these two things, the virus and this giant military intersect, the irrationality, the militarism, and the, the problems that come with it um, are, are very visible. But what's happening instead is that um, people are turning to the military, uh, both in government and in the general public, and assuming that this is who is going to save us. They're going to send us their ships. They're going to send us their ventilators. They're going to build us hospitals. They're going to send us their personnel. Um, and they're doing some of those things, but um, they're not doing it um, in the same way that the civilian sector might do it. And they're not doing it at the same, uh, with the same cost as the civilian sector would have done it. Um, and again, some of these resources should have been in, in civilian hands to start with so that the, the public health problems that the America has had for years, um, high rates of infant mortality, um, maternal mortality in the African-American community, um, high rates of um, diabetes and, and cancers and all sorts of diseases of our environment and our food supply. I mean, these are the kinds of things that, you know, might have been uh, problems that might have been tackled with, with those funds, which instead were fighting wars in Iraq and Afghanistan to, uh, uh, to the kind of ends that we've seen. So I don't know if that's that's answers the question that you have. Yes, 
<laughs> that's a very powerful point and, and, and an example that's that's not only poignant, but deeply troubling, deeply troubling. Uh, Nita, did you want to add to that? No, that nails it. <laughs> so, so then why, what should we be responding to when people, and it's not just those on one side of the political spectrum, we hear all kinds of individuals saying that we're at war with the pandemic. Is that the wrong thing to say? I think it's wrong. uh, I think it's wrong to uh, equate any kind of uh, struggle, any mobilization with war. And the kind of mobilization that we could be engaged in, you know, one where compassion and care and uh, the use of resources to help uh, it shouldn't be difficult to find a metaphor of of love and connection, but instead we have to mobilize uh, a metaphor of uh, defeat and um, uh, basically destruction. That's um, true that this is a struggle, but not all struggles need to be equated with with war. I, I find that disturbing in a sense. Uh, again, it's a valorizing war when we know that, you know, when war is valorized, that means that it becomes uh, seen as both uh, possible and legitimate. And, it's, and, and there are other things that we are doing which are not warlike. We're actually helping people by um, helping them, uh, help providing, for instance, uh, ways for people to make masks at home and contribute those masks to hospitals. That's a, a gesture of generosity and care. It's not, it's not war. Right. Um, Actually the metaphor, uh, the metaphor d- directs our attention to the virus, right? It says we, we want to kill the virus. The virus is the enemy, right? Um, and, and president Trump in particular has uh, riffed on this quite a bit. The idea that, it's an invisible enemy. It's uh, it's and and we're destroying it. Um, and that I mean, one can't sort of say that that's not what we're trying to do. We're, we are trying to destroy the ability of the of the virus to to replicate and and move from person to person. But because we focus on that as opposed to uh, mutual care. Um, it's and, and, and the metaphors that we would be using there that might be more available in a different kind of society would allow us to focus more on that. Again, those stories aren't absent from the media or from the way we talk to each other, um, but certainly um, the, the much more common metaphor is one that, that doesn't focus on that. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. War implies violence and it implies winners and losers and and the love metaphor that you both invoked or something similar to that would it would imply mutuality uh in in a way that's probably more appropriate uh zachary uh you want to ask about where we go from here really we always like to close on a positive note what can we learn how can we do better zachary go ahead how how do you think we begin to to counter this uh trend of militarism which has really uh captured our country over the past few decades how do we begin to counteract that I think we we do have the opportunity right now to, to object um, to the use of the military uh, or the celebration of the military as the the savior here. I mean, I think that's that's almost. Um, I'm not maybe answering the question of how do we go backwards from where we are now to a, a or or go forward to a to a better 
social order. But I, I'm, I do think that in this current crisis and moment, the opportunity is there to at least push back on a further um, valorization of the military as the as the as the be all and end all institution of American society and. And certainly public polls show uh, that over the last um, many decades, uh, the the U.S. military has gotten um, more and more uh, public support um, for for a variety of reasons, more and more of a sense that soldiers are super citizens and that uh, the institution is the most, uh, has the the highest uh, character of, of, um, you know, it's they, not the nurses and doctors who've been allowed to get off the planes first or, um, you know, get salutes at, at, uh, at sporting events. Um, but one can imagine that if we push this forward, we're thanking, um, healthcare workers and the, the cleaners and the food service workers in the hospitals, thanking them for their service, um, and community care, uh, rather than, uh, an institution whose, whose main purpose will always be to wage war. I, I also wanted to respond to that if I could. Please. I th- yeah, I think, um, Zachary, one of the important things that we can do is think about if we had a world uh, that that we'd all like to see, one where our basic needs are met, one where people could um, get the kinds of education that they needed to pursue their aspirations, one where um, you were doing work that you felt was valued and valuable, that when we think about that kind of world, we don't get it by building um, a a military. We might be able to protect it if we were attacked, but we're not being attacked for the most part. Um, We we get the world that we want to see by investing in life-affirming institutions and practices and learning how to deal with conflict in ways that are not uh, militarized, but rather that are respectful and deeply democratic. So I think to get there, what we have to do is decrease military spending in the U.S., which is much greater than any of its rivals, and put those resources where they could do better work for us, uh, not just at home, but in the rest of the world. So I, I think it's really rethinking about uh, the how we conceive of security, what security means. It's called human security in the literature, but really it's an ethic of care and uh, responsibility and democracy that we need to be promoting rather than um, putting all of our eggs into a basket that says the the best thing that we can do is um, deploy resources that were meant to to kill um, and we're going to deploy those ill-fitting resources for war. I think we have to just start prioritizing uh, these other values rather than the, the military one. Well, and, and I think, uh, Nita and Kathy, that's a perfect uh, point to close on. Uh, what, what you have elucidated in your scholarship, both of you, uh, through the Costs of War Project at Brown that I hope everyone will look at, through your recent article in The Hill, um, and in your uh, insights today, you've elucidated the ways in which we as a very rich, well-endowed society have have perhaps uh, misused many of our resources. Uh, And we see this so clearly today when, when, as you said, 
uh, we're confronted with this huge health crisis and we seem so uh, under-resourced in some of the basic human care that we would expect as citizens in any society, but particularly in a society with the resources that we have. And, and if nothing else, this moment, as you have pointed out so well, and, and you anticipated in your scholarship, uh, this moment should force us to, to rethink how we allocate our resources and the priorities we set at home as, as well as abroad. Uh, I wanna thank you for joining us today, for lending your insights. I wanna encourage our listeners to read your scholarship. And of course, I wanna thank Zachary for his poem as well. Thank you for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.